The reading is taken from Micah, chapters 6 and 7, found on page 934 of the Church Bibles. It's page 934. So I'm reading from Micah chapter 6, verse 1, through to chapter 7, verse 7. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains, let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and your short ephah, which is accursed, Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied, your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing. Because what you save, I will give to the sword. You will plant, but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use the oil. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations." What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. 
Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come, the day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. Do not trust a neighbour, put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonours his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Saviour. My God will hear me. Thanks, Sarah, for reading that. Let me, let me pray as we come to look at God's word together. Oh, Lord God, we've uh, heard and acknowledged this morning that you are the creator of everyone and everything, and that means we are creatures, and it's good for us uh, to listen to the voice and the words of the one who made us. So please, would you help us to do that humbly and attentively? Uh, this morning. Amen. Um, now, here, here's a thing. I mean, call yourself a, a Christian, and it, it won't be long before you encounter times when some of your friends, and they're not being mean when they're saying this or thinking this, some of your friends uh, will think, well, if you're a Christian, surely that kind of puts constraints uh, on your life, and they kind of things you do. It puts constraints on you. And because, when, uh, because we live in an age when there's a, a priority on kind of self-expression, on being who you want to be, they'll perceive those kind of constraints as, as a kind of slavery, um, which is why it's strange to discover the Bible would look squarely in the eyes of anyone who is not a Christian and say, no, no, you, you're in slavery. I mean, that's just weird, isn't it? Well, that seems the wrong way around. I don't think of any of my friends who are not Christians who would think that way around. Uh, but that's, that's what the Bible says. Now, why would it say that? Look, we'll get some way towards an answer if we begin to get our heads around uh, what's going on in, in Micah chapter 6 and into chapter 7, what we've read this morning. We're back with this Old Testament prophet. He was speaking to the people of his day. They've, their society has become uh, greedy and selfish. Pounds matter more than uh, people. Living for self has become uh, the subtle, or, or even not so subtle, message of their culture and even their religion. Uh, just want to be rich. It doesn't matter about other people. Get what you can. Uh, forget them. And in chapter 6, Micah speaks from God again, and it's set up like a final court case. Did you notice that? Verse 1. Uh, there was one right at the beginning of the book. This is like a final court case. Verse 1, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up and plead my case before the mountains. God, if you like, is, is saying, I'm going I'm to call all my people into court. That's what he's doing. He's calling his people into court, and he will prosecute them. 
And at the heart of things is this idea the Bible would call more widely our slavery. And here's what it's going to say to us. It's saying this, look, life without God becomes destructive slavery. Verse 3, God asked the question, my people, what have I done to you? Here's his prosecution coming. What have I done to you? And then he, he retells, he goes over their history with them again. They had been slaves generations before in, in Egypt. But verse 4, he says, I redeemed you from the land of slavery. Um, and he says, I gave you leaders to look after you. Mentions Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Down in verse 5, he says, my people remember Remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted. That was a time during their wanderings when they came out of Egypt in the wilderness. You can read about it in the book of Numbers, chapter kind of 22 onwards. And while they were traveling in the wilderness, Balak hired a man with some claim to spiritual power to put a curse on the people of Israel. But every time he tried, God just kept blessing them instead. And then the next bit down where it says, remember Remember your journey to Gilgal. That was the final part of the journey. When they crossed into the promised land. And God's saying, look, I know the journey wasn't easy. But I redeemed you from slavery. I, I gave leaders to care for you. When others were out to get you, I was always blessing you. And remember, you made it there in the end. I kept all the promises I made. Now, when I got married to Julia, one of the things that changed as we began to, to live in a house together, is little, little colored objects started to um, appear around our house. Um, uh, some of you will know um, women of a particular kind where that kind of thing happens. All these little objects, little colored objects appeared around our house. And I said to Julia, is all this stuff, all this stuff in my house now, what is all this stuff? And she said, that's fruit and veg, David. Um, <laughs> There's going to be more of this kind of thing now. Um, and I guess you could say, look, I, one, summary, one summary of my history could be uh, life without Julia, unhealthy, literally. Uh, life with Julia, like, let's say healthier. I still have takeaways and things. Healthier, literally. And so you keep that in mind and you get God's point here. He's saying to Israel, think about your history. Think about your history. Go, go back over it. Just remember it again. Without God, slavery, literally, do you remember? Life with me. Life with me. Freedom, literally. That's one of the big lessons I've always been trying to teach you. This is the way it works. Life without me, slavery. Life with me, freedom. But now... But now these people are wanting to be free and wanting to be free this time from God. So you, you think to yourself, look, just supposing, just supposing the key to freedom is really knowing God. If that really is the key to a true and kind of joyful, free life, what would you expect to happen as they turn away from God? Well, that's what Mike is recounting here, all the way from verse 9 of chapter 6 through to chapter 6 of chapter 7. And what you see there is, look, it's a tale of money-grabbing injustice. And it's a tale of utterly selfish relationships. 
the money-grabbing injustice. Verse 11, God says this, Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your, your rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars. They're, they're ripping people off. And their selfishness has become embedded in a, even in the way society operates. Get rich quick. Even if you rip other people off. Well, it's just business, isn't it? Just good business. You've got to make the most you can for yourself. And that word translated violent in verse 12, it, it kind of means lawless, unethical, ripping stuff away from people in an unethical way. You can imagine the scene of rich and influential bankers who, who exploit other people wanting to do that. It's money-grabbing injustice. And you can't trust anyone. You, you get down to chapter 7 and he, he moves from the world of finance through corrupt courts in verse 3 of chapter 7 to your neighbors and your friends in verse 5 right down to the, the woman or the man you climb into bed with at the end of the day. And he says, look, even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. Be careful what you say. Even with the person you're in bed with, just, just watch what you say. You can't trust even them. I read an article just over the weekend by someone called Nicola McInnes. I've I've not heard of her, but she was writing this article. She's the head of a family law firm, and she talks about how the increase of dating apps, you come across these things, don't you? Uh, the increase of dating apps has led to the name Generation Swipe for the people who use them. Swipe left, swipe right. I think that's kind of how it works as you're looking for someone. And one survey, she was saying, suggests that 40% of the people who use these kind of dating apps, they're already in committed relationships. Many of them are already married, but the profiles are uploading to dating apps. Can't trust anyone. What happens when that kind of thinking becomes embedded in a society? Money-grabbing injustice, self-serving relationships. Everyone's tendencies is kind of leaning that way. It's like a car that you can't quite steer straight. It's always pulling off in that direction. And if you get this and you begin to recognize it and you say, I see something of that, you'll you begin to understand what the Bible means when it says, look, we're slaves. We're enslaved in this kind of way. We're bound up in a way of living. We can't seem to, to shift it. You say stop doing wrong things and you think, well, I, I can't. And this tells us why. That's what Mike is saying. Life without God always becomes destructive slavery. And look, you might think that's a bit extreme. Maybe you've not heard that kind of idea before. You, you might think it's just a bit extreme, but it would make sense of why society keeps tending this way. Why, after all through the years, we've not got rid of this kind of problem in our societies. Why it always comes back up again. And actually, I think, if I'm thinking personally, it makes sense of me when I discover deep within myself a nasty streak of selfishness, just wanting things my own way. I'm a slave to it. And you get to this point, listen to Mikey, like Old Testament prophets, they're so miserable. They're always going on about the bad stuff. And you kind of feel they're, they're almost like the, the worst in the kind of opposition in Brexit negotiations. They're always telling you what's wrong and what they don't like, but they never offer. Nobody's got a solution. Well, Mike has got a solution. He's, he's going to hint at it here. 
But it will feel kind of counterintuitive because he says in, in light of this slavery, we need God to buy us for himself. Now that sounds weird, doesn't it? Because I think doing what I want is freedom. That's what freedom is. Doing what I want is freedom. Belonging to someone else, oh, that's slavery, that's constraint. But Micah says, no, living for yourself, that's the thing that will lead you to slavery. Being owned by God, that's the thing that will really bring about freedom. We'll, we'll come back to that. But look, first, if you, you have a Bible open in front of you, just look at chapter 6, verses 6 to 8, because the, the, these verses, I, I think in many ways, they're the heart of the book. They have this funny Old Testament book, Micah, and they're the heart of the problem he's getting at. Let, let me read it. It says this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We're back in court. Remember that, that the kind of context of this, it's been set up like a, a court case. And what Micah is doing here, he's kind of summarizing the people's response to God's prosecution, the accusations God's bringing. Micah's summarizing how the people are responding to God. And they're saying, look, look God, how much do you want from us? How much are you after? Is it sacrifice? Is it service? Is it the quantity? Do you really want more? Is it thousands of offerings you want from us? Is it the quality, God? Are we not bringing good enough stuff? What, what do you want from us? A firstborn child? Should we offer one of our children for you? And you hear the tone. What more do you want? And then the response comes in verse 8. And God's looking for justice and mercy and a life that humbly trusts him. And when you hear that, they kind of question, the tone of the question and the answer, they, they don't really feel like they balanced, do they? They feel sort of, un, they're unbalanced. And as you think about it, you understand what's going on. The difference between what they're offering and what God's asking for. One's about an external religion. The other's about an internal affection. One's an attempt to buy God off. The other's an expression of belonging to God. One's saying, what do I need to do? What do I need to do so I can go on with my life my way? The other's saying, I'm going to set my life to live God's way. A Christian, if you're here this morning, and you would call yourself a Christian, whatever age you're at, give attention. Give attention to how you think about God. The more you listen, the more you realize these people are willing to offer God everything except the very thing he's asked for, which is themselves. A life that just humbly trusts him. And what's unsettling, what's really unsettling is it's all conducted under the guise of extravagant external religion. And if you get this, you, you know what the Bible is saying. You or I could be we could be actively religious. We could describe ourselves as Christians. We could come to church. But underneath all of that, you don't really know God. 
You might be someone who describes themselves as spiritual. You want to be spiritual, but on your own terms. You might like some of the things the God of the Bible seems to offer, but you want to pick and choose with him. You'll ignore, and you'll even be cross about the bits you think are a bit much. Come on, God. If the people I work with were to find out that I believe those kind of things in the Bible, I, I can't go along with that. I mean, how much do you, how much do you want, God? And Micah would say, do you know why you get annoyed? Do you know why you get cross about those kinds of things and push back against them? It's because like the people of Judah, you're enslaved. You're bound up in just wanting to live for yourself. And that self-serving is embedded. And so we won't humbly live for God. And if that was true, what could we do about it? Now here's the thing. Mike has talked about their slavery in Egypt. And, and just if you get this right, if that slavery in Egypt that they went through, if that really is a picture, it's just meant to be a picture of this bigger slavery that we all experience, that we're stuck, then perhaps their rescue, their rescue from Egypt gives a pattern of the way we can really be set free. I mean, how can a slave get free? A slave's got no money to buy themselves. When he rescued them, God came and judged Egypt, and to avoid being judged themselves, because the, the people of Israel had done all sorts of things wrong, God told them to kill a lamb and put its blood above the door. It was a sign between them and God. It was, it was saying, if you like, that look, this lamb, someone else will pay the price for the things you've done wrong. So, so look, chapter 6, verse 4, we read it earlier. God says this, Look, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Re- redeems a word from the slave market. It means to buy something back. And you hear what God's saying. Look, how are people really going to get free? And he's saying, I'll provide a way to pay the price. And saying, we need God to buy us for himself. And so that means that becoming a Christian is not... It's not about trying harder. Becoming a Christian is not just a a kind of encouragement to try harder. No, it's a humble request for rescue. It's saying to God, will will you rescue me? And it also means that that being a Christian, if it is a rescue where God buys you back, it, it means being a Christian means everything belongs to God. He's bought you. He owns everything now. And and life's to be lived humbly, trusting him. That's the way it works. I don't know if you invite people around for uh, Sunday lunch from time to time, but imagine Richard Newman, who's been leading the service. Imagine you invite Richard round for Sunday uh, lunch one day, and there's a few other people there. You've, you've got a few other guests around as well, and you're looking forward to it. And you've, you've made a big roast chicken. You bring it out. You say to Richard, first of all, he's kind of like the special guest, and you say, Richard, uh, would, would you like some chicken? And he says, no, I want all of it. And you look at Richard, and you're a bit shocked, and you say, you're very rude. Wouldn't have expected that from somebody who stands up at the front of church. Don't you have any manners? You're a rude man. And in Micah's day, the people are saying to God, like, come round for lunch. Come round for lunch, God. And God, how much of my life 
would you like? And it sounds really generous, doesn't it? How much of my life would you like? And God says, no, I want all of it. And they say, well, you're very rude, God. You're quite a rude person, aren't you? Don't you have any manners? And God says, no, I want all of it because no one else is entitled to any of it. I bought it. It belongs to me. And the thing about God is that him having everything doesn't lead to the slavery of selfishness, but to freedom. There's a real irony in this passage. It's in verse 7 when the the people think they can buy God off. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? Exploit another life to kind of pay for the things you've done wrong. And the irony is, while they, they couldn't do that, that's what God did. The New Testament's full of it, the way it kind of It fills this out for us and explains it. Paul writes about it this way in the book of Galatians. He says, When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and here's the word again, to to redeem, to buy back those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. How does God buy people back? Well, you could say he spent everything he had in Jesus on the cross paying the price for what we do wrong. You ask the question, what is God like? What's he like, this God? Is he a tyrant? Is he, is he someone who's out to demand things that will impoverish us? The Bible says no. He's not like that. He has spent himself for you and done that with the purpose of setting you free. What does that mean? What would that mean for us? Look, it means that If you and I, if we want a life that's truly free, if we want to be a church family together that understands freedom instead of a kind of slavery to selfishness, it'll only happen as we we get to know deeply the God that we meet in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is, let let me put it this way, Jesus Christ is, he's the means, the measure, and the motivation of true freedom. He's the means to true freedom. He's the way by which God will buy you for a new kind of life. On the cross, he gave his life to take the penalty for for all the ways you've ignored him and lived selfishly. All that's destructive about selfishness, he's borne the ultimate consequences for so that we can be given a new kind of life. You can't pay for that. You can't buy that. You're a slave. You've got nothing to buy it with. but, But Jesus Christ himself has the means. And he's paid the price for you. And he's also the measure of freedom. Jesus shows us in his life what a life lived freely looks like. Blaise Pascal said, all men seek happiness, whatever different means they employ. They all tend towards this end. He's saying, look, we're we're all after happiness. We're all pursuing it. That's what we live for. But we're not very good at finding it. Jesus Christ, on the night before he gave his life, the night before he gave his life on the cross, said to his disciples, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And then he says this, the night before he goes to the cross to give away his life for other people, he says, I have told you this so that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be complete. Jesus Christ lived obeying God and loving others And while it was more costly than we can ever fully understand, it did not impoverish him as a person. He displayed freedom and glorious joy. 
And when he asks you and me to live not for self, but obeying God and loving others, it's not to enslave you. It's for your joy. It's for your freedom. The extent to which we we follow Jesus and obey God will begin to show the measure of freedom and joy that you have. And he's also the motivation for for freedom. The God you meet in Jesus is not a God who kind of barks out orders and never lifts a finger to help himself. No, you begin to see as you read this, uh, whatever this God asks you to do in his service, he's already done first for you in your service. This is a God who, if you get to know him in Christ, will motivate you by his example. So what should we do? Let me tell you a couple of things, just as we we draw this to an end. But I can imagine there, there's some of you who have been coming along to Christchurch for a while. You, you've been coming along to Christchurch, new to kind of Christian things, and you've been hearing about Jesus, and the, the measure of his life and words has been challenging and attractive. You, you think, there's something here. I like this. And more than just a measure of something you've seen, you, you felt it motivating. You've thought, I do you know what? I, I want to live this way. You, you feel you want to live that way, but you've not quite got it yet. It doesn't seem to quite get started. And that might be because you've not understood. You don't have the means. You don't have the means to live this kind of life. You can't do it. It's not something you can just work yourself up to and, and suddenly begin to live that way. Um, you need to humbly say, I'm like a slave. I'm the one impoverished. Would you buy me for yourself? And Jesus Christ is the means of that rescue. He can do that for you if you will ask him. Here's another thing, though. I can also imagine there's some of us here, and and we really are Christians. You know that. You've trusted the Lord Jesus. You call yourself a Christian, and that's genuine. But freedom and joy feels like it's lacking now. And you recognize in yourself a creeping kind of selfishness. And that's probably because you've been drifting from Jesus. You, you've stopped reading his word, trusting what he says, praying for his help. And you need him again to be the measure and motivation of what freedom and life looks like for you. You're going to be confronted, even as you head into this week, with all sorts of claims for what freedom looks like. Free to determine your actions any way you choose. Free to use your time from your weekends Uh, to your gap years any way you want to. Free to spend your money from your paycheck to your savings on anything you want. That's what being free is. But Jesus says, no. Start thinking. Free to enjoy obeying God and living for him, not for yourself. We're going to stop and just have a moment to pray there. But before Richard comes back up, I'm, I'm going to suggest w- one thing. I'm going to pray a particular prayer. And it, it's just this. Look, if you are someone who's been coming along to Christ Church, and you have been hearing about the Lord Jesus, and you think, I do find his life compelling, and his claims, and what he's saying, I, I want that for myself. And I don't know how to go about it. If you would like to pray a prayer uh, that's saying, to God, I'd like to trust Jesus. I'd like to be forgiven. I'd like to become a Christian. You don't need to do anything out loud. I'm going to say some words uh, of a prayer uh, now that you can echo in your own mind and heart uh, to God. If you'd like to do that, there's no kind of coercion or anything, just if you want to. But 
sometimes if you'd like to do it and you're not quite sure what to say, let me pray some words. And if you'd like to do that, you, you just pray it on um, in, in your own head and heart as I do that. So if it helps, let's have a moment just to close our eyes and bow our heads and I'll lead in a prayer for all of us. Oh dear God, I've been coming along to church and reading the Bible. And I've heard the things you say. And I believe them. I am someone who's stuck ignoring you. And I've been living for myself. But I also hear what Jesus is offering. And I would like him to rescue me. Please would you forgive me for the things I've done wrong. Would you buy me for yourself? And would you help me to live a life that trusts you? Amen.